2: Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks if it really is all over for the Tories and what Labour needs to do to win and change Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika.
3: And I'm Sam Friedman. And today we come to you from the Future of Britain conference in Westminster, where in just a moment, Keir Starmer will be delivering his keynote speech, setting out his vision for Britain alongside Tony Blair, the man whose success he hopes to emulate.
2: But is Keir passing the power test? Well, joining us today, we've got a fantastic lineup. We have Labour's former Home Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, the Times journalist and columnist Rachel Sylvester, and the journalist, broadcaster, and host of Rock and Roll Politics podcast, Steve Richards.
3: So just to set the scene for everybody, Asia, we're sitting in like a glass box in the middle of the conference centre. It's quite noisy and people keep looking in at us I as do. if we're sort of zoo animals, which I is slightly like unnerving. A, I feel like a centrist David Lean. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and it is very buzzy. It's a very buzzy conference. People are very happy. fest this year is sort of, uh, they feel sort of on top of things and like they're sort of back in with a... A shout of power.
2: I mean, the buzz is extraordinary. As you were saying, this is kind of now known as Blair Stock, uh, Blair Fest. It's actually Tony Blair's Institute for Global Change. It's a conference that gathers together media, thinkers, policy analysts, lots of lobbyists. It's a second annual Future of Britain conference. I mean... They focus a lot on lots of policy issues. There was a very interesting thing about growth today, transforming public services, the rise of AI, climate change, geopolitics. And what's interesting is, like, the atmosphere last year, I don't know if you were here last year. Last year, the first one that they had done, and for a lot of despairing, very despondent centrists, they sort of came just to kind of look at tony blair on stage <laughs> to check out his gleaming magnificence what we gold. used to
3: have <laughs>
2: but it's amazing it just shows you sam how much things have changed in a year because now you know nobody is gloomy the place is packed full of former blair ministers and mps lots of mps who are trying to come back into politics douglas alexander is here anna turley he used to hold the red car seat but the other thing which i think is fascinating is there so many, like, former Labour advisors who are now working for public affairs companies and they're so excited because their stock is about to go up?
3: Yes, yeah, suddenly they're a lot more valuable to <laughs> prospective respective clients. Um, but there's also the fact that Starmer is speaking here today. I mean, that, that sort of very symbolic of, uh, of quite a journey that he has been on, obviously, from 2020 when he was presenting himself as a figure that Corbynites could be comfortable with not quite as far left maybe as Corbyn, but certainly sort of preaching a lot of the same policy ideas to where we are today, which is sort of presenting, if not a Blairite, certainly a much more fiscally conservative, centrist persona to voters. Um, and the fact is here today is kind of indicative of that of That
2: fifth. Absolutely. And, and the timing, as you say, is fascinating. It shows the kind of, in X-Facts terms, the journey yeah. that Starmer ha- has been on. And, I mean, one of the things that I've heard a lot of people feel quite nervy about is Tony Blair going to maybe eclipse Keir Starmer on stage? Because nobody wants that to happen. Everyone's kind of, they love Tony Blair, but they're rooting for Keir Starmer as well. But on that journey, Sam, I mean, we meet at a really interesting point because it does feel that this week is the week where Labour have really kind of put some flesh on the bones. They've definitely got some definition, but it's definition on quite a tough message. It's definition on we are going to be fiscally, not just Conservative, quite hawkish, and we're going to stand firm on some really unpopular measures like the two-child cap uh, with, yeah. with child benefit.
3: And I think we've seen this building up, right, over the last few months. We've seen, as as the economy has deteriorated again... And I think Rachel Reeves' position within the party has strengthened as a result of that and sort of saying to her colleagues, we can't just keep making spending pledges. You've seen them rowing back on childcare, things like climate change policies, and the sort of resentment and frustration has been building within the party. But people have sort of been accepting it on the grounds that, okay, we, we need to win, we need to be disciplined. And then this week with the two child limit, which means that you can only get benefits for the first two of your children and you can't thereafter, it's sort of blown up a bit and you've had a real opposition for the first time. MPs have gone on the record to say we don't support this. Huge opposition from sort of their base on social media. And they might be thinking, okay, but they're not the voters. Voters actually do support this policy. It's, it's popular in polling. But there's only so far you can push your party. I mean, Blair found that himself eventually. And, and you sort of wonder if this week was a sort of point where they reached the level of resistance where they're going to find it much more difficult to go any further.
2: I feel like they wish that he maybe couched his language slightly in a different way because he was, you know, when Laura Clunswick said, are you you going to be doing this? He was very much, no. And people wanted him to sort of look like he was struggling with it a bit more.
3: Yes. and, and, And a couple of shadow cabinet ministers subsequently have looked like they're struggling with it a bit more and have sort of said things like, you know, we have to be careful with spending now. Sort of not ruling it out, he seemed to be ruling it out quite sort of comprehensively in that interview, which I think is what upset people. If he just said something like, "Finances are tough at the moment, we can't make promises, I'm not going to write my first budget, but I'm on the record of saying, you know, I dislike this policy, I think the, the reaction would have been quite different. But it seemed almost that he wanted to, almost wanted to have the fight with his own party. And I am biased because I think it's an awful policy, like I've argued strongly against it myself. I think it's one of the worst social policies that the Conservatives introduced. We would remove 300,000 kids from poverty straight away, getting rid of it. And it's a policy that would cost a billion pounds to do. There is no cheaper way of getting children out of poverty than getting rid of it. So I, I do have a bias, but I think it's the wrong issue for them to go on, simply because they are themselves on the record as criticising it. Esther you know, Starmer, Rayner, Jonathan Ashworth, who's Shadow Welfare Secretary, are all on the record as saying, you know, using words like heinous and horrible and, and stuff like that so it's quite hard when those quotes all are being still, used
2: like they are all still defending and I've I mean Angela Rayner last night at the the PLP kind of said she's still stuck by that but she understood the need for fiscal discipline I mean I've spoken but to that's with, a
3: hard kind of, message to keep like I think it's a it's a clash of messaging that tactically you can understand how they've got there but strategically it feels like a bit of a mess to me
2: it's also worth just highlighting that the Tony Blair Foundation is very focused on trying to find some policy solutions, and that's what we've been trying to do mm. through the course of, of our podcast. And interesting, at the beginning, they set out sort of four areas for growth, which just caught my eye. I'll, I'll run you, uh, I'll listen to them. one was planning, which we would very much... Uh, yeah, we had our episode with. on, yeah. Um, another was a really interesting idea to, to use pensions to stimulate growth, to invest in... In infrastructure to stop our kind of reliance on on foreign money, owning a lot of um, in infrastructure and investing in startups, which I thought was a, was an interesting idea. Next two are ones that we have focused on a lot: labour shortages. They were um, basically saying that they should really loosen the migration regime for EU workers in areas like construction mm. and hospitality and health and and social care. And finally, on Europe, they were basically saying we've got to fix this relationship and basically get alignment. We've got it. We've got it. Yes, which
3: takes us back to our sort of second episode that we had on Brexit and sort of how exactly do you do that without actually just rejoining the single market, which you suspect most of the people in this building would quite like to do tomorrow if they could, but can't quite say that just yet. I mean, I think the pensions one is interesting. Uh, we haven't done an episode on that. I'm not sure our producers would accept a whole episode on pensions reform. But, seen um, that. Um, seen that. but it's actually something that both um, Labour and the Tories are sort of uh, getting excited about the prospect of sort of. we have lots of very small pension funds and bringing them together and agglomerating that money which happens in other countries could be a way of of driving growth i think jeremy hunt is also sort of quite keen on pushing that agenda too so what are you expecting hoping to hear from Starmer this afternoon we're just about to go into the speech high excitement (laughs) the thrill
2: also this is the first time that the you know these two men have shared a platform together so it's going to be really interesting I think the body language is going to be really interesting I wonder if Tony Blair is going to try and dial down his charisma and magnetism <laughs> animal magnetism and let's just hope Keir Starmer doesn't trip up like yeah. on or as he like walks across the stage and things like that look I think what's going to be interesting is to see how much Keir Starmer sort of bends the knee to the master mm. or how much he tries to kind of assert himself and say look Tone you've done a great job but I'm my own man.
3: Yes, and, and the extent to which Blair gives him the space to do that versus, you know, OK, new kid on the block, I'm still the one who's uh, who, who won three elections, and we're going to come back, well, you're going to come back after the speech and uh, with our guests, uh, David Blunkett, uh, Rachel Sylvester and Steve Richards. I'm not going to be with you for that because I have to go to the rehearsal for my children's bar mitzvah which is a three-line whip as you can imagine <laughs> my non-attendance of that would be very much noted and disapproved of so you would basically lose the whip i would lose more than the whip <laughs> um, so i am gonna going to be going to lose your house yes quite so i'm going to that and leaving uh, the interviews in your capable hands but tomorrow we're going to reconvene to have a bit of a chat about how it all went so i will i will get my chance to sort of comment on, on what we hear. And
2: we want full feedback from the rehearsal. Oh,
3: okay. I'll, give you, I'll give you, uh, tell you how that's going as well. <laughs> uh,
1: thank you, John. It's such a pleasure to be here today. And I'm really grateful for the invitation.
2: In his speech, Keir Starmer focused heavily on the pursuit of economic growth.
1: We need three things. Growth, growth, growth.
2: He talked about having a mission-driven government.
1: It's about the how as well as the what. A new way of governing that draws on a deep body of work.
2: He said his plans for the country were inherently progressive.
1: For me, this is a progressive moment.
2: And you told Tony Blair that the mood of the country is very different now compared to 1997.
1: Labour was able to come in and and absolutely sort of turbocharge that sense that we're going to go into a new century, it's a new way of doing politics, modernising, things can only get better. That's not the position (laughs) by a long shot.
2: So we are just post the Keir Starmer speech and his One-to-one, his Tete-a-Tete with uh, Tony Blair. As you can hear, we've got lots of background noise just to paint the picture. There's a big drinks reception going on. The kind of centrist city that we have gathered here in the basement of this hotel is all tucking into lots of nice drinks. But I have a group of illustrious guests who are delaying their drinks so that they can speak to me and speak to you about what they thought about Keir Starmer's speech. Did they think Keir Starmer... Is ready not just to win power but change britain for the better particularly with all the challenges he faces now delighted to have Labour's former home secretary and education secretary and work and pension secretary lord david blunkett hello david
4: very pleased to be here
2: thank you so much we're also delighted to have the Times journalist and columnist Rachel Sylvester. Rachel, hello. Hi Aisha. And delighted to have the journalist, broadcaster, very funny stand-up comedian as well, host of the brilliant podcast Rock and Roll Politics. He'll be at the Edinburgh Festival. Go see him. Steve Richard. Steve, welcome.
0: Very accurate, except for the comedian. (laughs) I don't play for laughs like (laughs) you do at these live events, but yeah.
2: Rachel, I'm going to start with you. What did you make of Keir Starmer's speech today and his his the first time he and Tony Blair have done something together?
5: Yeah, it was really fascinating to watch the interaction between them. So there was definitely the anointing of the air by Blair. You know, he said, uh, what you've done since 2019 is incredible. Uh, Starmer talked about how he'd had to do Kinnock, Smith and Blair in one term. Uh, And you could tell that Blair was genuinely impressed by that uh, and willing him on, willing him to succeed. But I also did feel that there was a sort of difference between them and Starmer much more of a cautious politician. So the message that has been coming through at this Tony Blair event today has been all about optimism, all about the future, And Starmer made a big point of stressing that the most important thing now for him is reassurance, not hope, not optimism. And he made the contrast with 1997. He said the backdrop, the economic backdrop, the mood of the country was very, very different to 1997. So that sort of Blairite anthem, things can only get better, is no longer appropriate, Starmer said. But I wonder whether Blair actually would agree with that. So Starmer had us his mantra, slightly echoing Blair, growth, growth, growth. But of course, Blair's mantra was education, education, education. Something much more proactive. It was more of a Gordon Brown message in a way from Keir Starmer. Talk of caution on the economy. He didn't quite use the word prudence, but it was more Brownite as a message, I thought, than Blairite. Interesting.
2: He also, um, in his speech, had uh, said he had a slight disagreement uh, with, with Tony Blair. He said he doesn't believe this is beyond politics. He said that, you know, progressives are the people who have the, the answer um, on this. And that's well, such an
5: interesting... Their backgrounds is so interesting. So Tony Blair's father was a Conservative, and I think one of the secrets of his success was that he really not just understood but respected Tory voters. Keir Starmer comes from a very Labour family... Uh, and he was making that drawing that difference between himself and Blair,
2: David Blunkett. Uh, your initial sort of post match uh, analysis of what we've just seen.
4: Well, firstly, I like the interaction. I think that if uh, Tony and Keir could go around the country and get themselves on podcasts like this, um, we'd actually be tracking it, we'd get the message across because Keir was much more relaxed than he is in very formal speech mode, and I understand that. I thought the speech was thoughtful, it repeated quite a lot of what we already know, but to just pick up Rachel's point, I I think there's an interesting juxtaposition here. Tony Blair understands that the Labour Party has to be seen as the nation's answer. So of course we must be Labour uh, and we must actually uh, play to and and infuse progressive politics but we've actually got to make people feel as if our mission and what he's laying out, his five missions and the the links that he made to them, that's gotta be something that the nation relate to. The problem with growth, which we all know we need, is that it means nothing to most people I talk to. We've somehow got to adapt the language, as Margaret Thatcher, God help us, did all those years ago and bring alive the same things that he's talking about, but in a language that people can relate to.
2: I very much agree with that, David. I mean, look, growth is quite kind of abstract. GDP is, is abstract. All these things are quite abstract to, let's say, the woman in red car.
4: Well, I've just been talking to the woman in red car, namely Anna Tull- Anatoly, <laughs> who's been adopted at, uh, once again, thank goodness, as our, as our Labour candidate there. What strikes me, and it's a difficult balance, this, is how you do give people some hope that things are going to change. I, I never liked the song, Things Can Only Get Better. Um, a bit late
2: for that now, David. Uh, and
4: it's, uh, it's a bit late anyway. But I think that the balance between understanding how cautious we have to be, how difficult the situation is going to be, but actually making it worthwhile voting Labour. So there has to be a narrative that says we can do it. It will take time. We will build. For instance, the the, the rather spurious debate we had about whether we were going to spend 28 billion pounds on uh, on net zero in uh, in the first year it was a nonsense because it will take two or three years to build up a spending profile, even if you have a commitment, uh, as important as that one. So, getting into government is also about explaining to people what government is like. And, and I'm really, I suppose, in this podcast, offering my services because... I know perfectly well how long it took us to get some of the really fundamental changes in education and employment off the ground. Mm.
2: Well, I'm sure they would be absolutely wise to, to reach out to you, I'm sure they have done. Steve Richards, what did you make of, as Rachel said, the anointment, the sort of Blair blessing of Starmer that we just saw?
0: Well, I found the event itself rather moving, actually, because all of us in this room are old enough to remember when Blair was the coming person who had to pass various tests as Labour leader, as a youthful Labour leader, from 94 to 97. And there he was now, age 70, the elder statesman in a dialogue with the new coming Labour leader. And and I found something about the movement of time rather touching, actually. However, I think the challenge for Keir Starmer, who, by the way, was more relaxed than I thought he would be. It was quite testing for him I to know. be performing in front of the three times election winner. And he was relaxed. It'd be like doing and, a duet with Beyonce. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And he was more himself than he can be. Uh, I've written and said quite a lot about an Observer article he wrote a few days ago which just lifted phrases from Tony Blair from around 2003 and three and four, And it was a weak form of imitation. There he was, sitting with Tony Blair, and he was
4: more himself. I agree with that. That It was a lot better. And if it was you could a get lot Keir better. Starmer across like that, then doubters, I think, would be won over.
0: I, I, that's interesting that you thought got as well. Don't I, it was a weak article, and, and, and he was stronger in front of the man himself. And he sought, I think, some clearer, distinctive definition. But I think he needs to escape from the burdens of the past, i.e., when Rachel can sit here and say he is Starmer, not a Brownite or a Blairite, when he can sit there and say, I have to be Kinnock Smith and Blair in one go, no. He has to be Keir Starmer, facing a unique set of circumstances and challenges. And, And when he's broken through that barrier, he will be himself mm. and more compelling as a public figure. But today, I thought it was really interesting.
2: I mean, I, I think, I think you're, you've really helped him something there. And I think one of the things that I've observed of him, watching him as a student of him, but also, you know, having met him and I know him a, a bit, I think one of his great strengths, actually, and this is sort of counterintuitive for a leader is, I think he hasn't got a huge ego. And so he's at the stage now where he doesn't have to assert himself as like, I'm the big man in in town. Like I noticed a few times at the beginning, the audience were a bit nervous about him being on with Blair. You could sense. And Blair got a lot of big laughs at at the beginning. But, But Starmer looked calm about that. He didn't look agitated. He didn't suddenly start competing in a kind of like alpha way against sort of Tony Blair. And I think that's quite true of his kind of characteristic. And I think If he does win, then he will have defined a a new era. He will be this new era in in politics.
4: And here's a thought. I think he he clearly exudes confidence. He doesn't panic. Um, And that's a very good thing. But I think he's got to use that confidence to believe that he actually has changed the Labour Party sufficiently to believe that Labour is on track, i.e. the party as a whole, and not just those immediately around him. And I say that because I've applauded the incredible moves he's taken, very difficult, as he described, the moves he's taken to to shake up and to change the Labour Party to a party of government, not of permanent opposition. But having done that, you've got to know when it's time to allow those who are committed, those you can hear in the background this evening, to be part of the solution. And uh, I think that's a delicate balance. In in other words, if I'm putting it as clearly as I usually do, don't don't overdo the top down.
2: Now, Rachel, you know, we we meet in a a very interesting moment for Keir Starmer, and he very much alluded to it in his conversation with Tony Blair, almost slightly mocking the people who have been attacking him for this row about the decision on child benefit-keeping. The or on the two-child policy. Very defiant, I thought. But I feel like this is one of the first weeks he's really been tested on those difficult decisions. Big backlash from within the the Labour movement and beyond. How do you think he's navigated this? What, What do you think the fallout of this is going to be for him? Is this fight good for him to have, or do you think there's going to be repercussions? I think the problem is that he's
5: defining himself entirely through a prism of sort of fiscal responsibility and economic competence. Whoever wins the next election isn't going to be able to stick to these spending limits that the Tories have, you know, basically artificially announced to get them through the election and to create this bear trap for Labour. Um, so he'll have to sort of revisit a lot of these things after the election. I do you think, I wonder, I don't know what David and Steve think, but I think it's possible that he... Could be a better prime minister than he is a campaigner. I think he's so anxious and nervous in the run-up to an election. It was Blair who had that phrase, or or uh, Roy Jenkins oh, who yeah. the phrase about the Ming bars across the slippery floor about Tony Blair. And Keir Starmer is like that. In, you know, in, he's in, like on the slippery space, floor. But like on, on ice exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I,
4: oh, I, I think if it's on stage, I mean, I, I don't know whether Steve, you, you go around the country as well. Clearly boris johnson was a, a, a very successful campaigner and a lousy prime minister and i have no problem with here being less good at campaigning and better at being prime minister the problem is you've got to get there
2: and
0: to prove yeah. it that there's going to be many other interviews like the one laura kinsberg did with him on sunday it's one of the themes of my podcast the pre-election tax and spend debate is bonkers it's that bears very little relation to reality in government. But before the election, he will be inundated with questions uh, more on this, yes or no. And he
4: can't can't allow that to happen, Steve. No, he He, can't. He's got to say we're not... Look, 13 years, most of it underpinned by austerity. We cannot allow the interviewees, whether it's him or whether it's the Shadow Cabinet, or, or the public... have to put up with are we going to reverse this are we going to reverse that but but,
5: but, david on the two child policy do you think he's right about that because actually you know all the experts agree that that's been terrible for child poverty isn't working even in its own well i think the
4: surprising thing about it um and i do talk to a lot of young people just starting out with their families who actually support the policy purely on the grounds that they don't believe that the state should be the parent. Now, that might be quite a shock to all of us who grew up post-beverage and and with the welfare state, as I did, but it's a fact, and and the opinion poll's buried out. I, I would bring something back in, but I would try and do it in a different way, and I think if he's... If he's not going to be picked off one by one, because this isn't the only issue yeah. where so, so policy has gone very badly but wrong. David,
2: I think, look, I get what you're saying, but as, as somebody who is also a, a journalist now, as, as well as having been a former Labour advisor advising, I'm afraid you can't stop people asking that the Labour leader that question. So, the,
0: so you come up with a, a more nuanced answer, uh, and the nuanced answer is he is on the record for saying he opposes the, the decision. So you say. Look, I'm not going to announce our tax-to-spend plans for the first month after the election on your programme, Laura, but over time we hope to address that in a wider welfare reform package. And laugh
4: and and say, you know, how, how many times am I going to commit between now and the election to things that will wipe out everything else we want to do? in reversing what the Tories have done over 13 years. because you get into that trap, you've really had it.
5: Okay. But I think this is quite a totemic issue because it's about yeah. your values. Um, well, it is, it
4: is, it is, and it, and it isn't. It is in the sense that the Tories got this very badly wrong because it didn't change people's personal behaviour yeah. in the way that I think they expect to. But it's also about how do you, in a modern era, not 70 years on from the end of the... Or more of the first of the Second World War. How do you address child poverty, which was based, of course, on the family yeah. planning?
2: I want to move off the two-child policy, but it bleeds into a, a bigger issue, right? Which you've you've raised, Rachel. Every speech that he makes and, and Rachel Reeves makes, it is all about fiscal responsibility, and they are absolutely hammering that point home. And today, uh, Tony Blair was very helpful in, in hammering that point home. He said, "Look." the left always kind of, you know, radicalism doesn't mean more money. So they're both basically sending out a big message that there isn't going to be a a lot of money. They're also trying to send out a message of hope, optimism, transformation. Steve, how do you balance those two things? On the one hand, you're saying to people, it is going to be really bleak and there's no money. And then on the other hand, you're saying we're going to change Britain.
0: Well, first, there are two things. First of all, there are elements of those five missions which are very hopeful and offer hope. The green energy package is a very hopeful objective, but he has got to portray it in those terms. He needs in every interview to say, it's not all grim, Laura. It's not just, we can't do this. Think about what I am proposing to change Britain. It's really exciting. So That's one thing. He needs to say how exciting it is at every available opportunity. But there is a second, which is even if they, for understandable reasons, are scared to commit more money on day one, I think they do need to give a greater sense that over a period of time they will invest. It's so obvious that this country needs investment, not just the ubiquitous term reform. And reform anyway is expensive. You can't just throw out this word reform. I think it's a magic wand that changes everything. There needs to be investment. Now, they need necessarily... Space. I remember having conversations with David when he was Shadow Education Secretary in the build-up to 97. And, David, at times, you were frustrated as a Shadow Cabinet member on the financial straitjacket put on uh, all the Shadow Cabinet then. But there was growth, as Tony hmm. Blair acknowledged today. There is no growth. They have to hold out the prospect of greater investment, but,
4: celebrate but, the fact but, and not be ashamed of it. But, but, it, but it, it comes back to a point Rachel made much earlier. There will be money, actually. We're, we're, we're scared stiff of saying so, but government has money. They've yeah. just produced an underspend in education uh, to pay for the teacher's award. Now, that, that can be replicated right through government. There will be substantial underspends. There will be possibility, but there will also be dangers because I don't think the Tories have given up right up against the election on some form of cut of income tax, even though they've made this terrible, well, albatross around our necks in terms of the holding the threshold till 28. And we've got to be much more sure-footed and being controversial now, I'm sure, uh, than we were when Liz Truss... People have forgotten, and I'm glad they have, but List Trust promised to cut income tax from 20, uh, basic rate, 20 to 19p in the pound. And we actually said to begin with that we would accept it. And I think we're going to have to be brave and we're going to have to say in, in, in terms and well in advance of the election that whilst we might not be in a, a taxing mode, we are not going to countenance them cutting taxes and us having to pick up the pieces. Now, if we don't do that, I think we'll be in real difficulty. Yeah.
2: Interesting. Rachel? Well,
5: I actually think there are some kinds of reform or modernization that don't necessarily cost money and that pharma could present in a really exciting way. So some of the things that have been discussed today on artificial intelligence in health, there are incredible developments going on about diagnosis, these new genetic personalised medicines. This is absolutely transformatory, the way in which data and medical records being shared. You know, they're controversial in different ways, but they don't necessarily cost a huge amount of money. And in fact, when you're talking about AI for diagnosis, it might both speed up treatment and save money. And the same with education. If you bring in technology to personalize learning, it becomes more exciting for children. But again, it isn't necessarily that new kind of curriculum doesn't necessarily involve a huge kind of capital investment.
0: I, I I agree with Rachel, but I think in a way, although it's exciting and potentially transformative, that politically is what is Tony Blaise called in a different context the low hanging fruit. Yeah. I mean, who is against the potential of a technological revolution? Sunak won't be against it either. When everyone goes around saying Britain isn't working, they have in mind where David lives in the north of England, none of the trains work. They're worried about social care and what the heck they're going to do with elderly relatives. They're worried about they can't get a GP appointment, and that means paying to get more GPs. In. Now, this, this is not low-hanging fruit. Of course, reform can help the way you deliver these things, but it will cost money. And you can't, I think, go into an election pretending that that's not the case.
2: Just going back to Starmer's speech, you know, it's so much about growth, and we've, we've heard this a lot, but not much on how that growth will be delivered. How do you think that growth is going to be delivered, Steve? Uh, and are we going to get any more detail, particularly when Labour said we're not going to reach for the immigration lever, which is one of the things that the Tony Blair Institute is calling for. They're basically calling for essentially freedom of movement for certain EU workers with you know, occupation shortages like construction or... Or hospitality. Without the immigration lever, how does Starmer get this group?
0: It's not at all clear, and he can't carry on just using the example of planning, or when, he, which incidentally, in government would be tricky, uh, because they'll have MPs in marginal seats saying we don't want this here, whatever it is. That well, look be at look planned. at the
4: Tories at the moment with their immigration camps. You know, the Tory MP don't want them. Absolutely. Carry on.
0: Yeah. Sorry. So, but. he he, he will need clear answers, because it is so fundamental. If they're not going to increase public spending for other means, they're going to need economic growth. And the how question is going to be interrogated again and again. And it's got to be beyond when he was DPP, cut out paper and that saved money. And It's got to be bigger. Um, And and you you give a good example. One of the causes of the lack of growth, bizarrely, is a labour shortage. We normally have unemployment as a problem there's an acute labour shortage in this country as a fundamental problem. I thought it was good that he uh, chose, you mentioned at the beginning, I should, chose to do something which distanced himself from Tony Blair. Because I know one of the things that frustrates shadow cabinet members sometimes is Tony Blair does a lot with Tories. As we were saying, on you know, Rachel, dad was a Tory. So he does a lot of these things with William Hague, for example. Now, that's fine for him, and William Hague is a maturing figure and interesting... But it makes it quite tricky for Keir Starmer to to explain the last 13 years how difficult this has been when he's got, you know, this figure who he's copying in some respects, hanging around with some of the people who were part of those 13 years. And I'm pleased he didn't just pay homage and, as I say, lift phrases from about 2003, Tony Blair, and and said, this is a, a," what did he call it, a progressive moment or a Labour moment. That's important. For him, because if it's just a moment which everyone can come across from former yeah. Tory leaders, it's it, it ceaseless. He's got to own he's this.
4: Got vote. To own the this corollary, corollary of, of that, that the, is important. The corollary of that is we've got to get across as well that we're going to join with progressive forces across the world and, and get across it that we're not small islanders, that we understand the, the major challenge of being able to deliver locally whilst dealing with globalisation.
2: Uh, and would you would you agree with the sort of Tony Blair idea of, of loosening the, the immigration regime, which Keir Starmer doesn't really want
4: to do? Well, I, I, I think that the Tories have had to. They said they weren't, but they've had to loosen it. What we've managed to do, perversely, is to shut down those areas of migration which we needed most with people with particular skills, a particular background, particular understanding of the... The culture of the country closed that one down and opened it up to other parts of the world where the skill set is not the same and where the cultural background is different. You couldn't have had a more perverse outcome of the, so uh, think, the immigration policies of the Tories than we've got at the moment.
2: So, do you think an incoming Starmer government should then sort of do what Tony Blair's kind of proposed, which is allow? easier freedom of movement for EU workers where we've got these specific shortages. Well, not, a bit like freedom of I movement. I
4: don't think that Keir Starmer can afford to go into election or immediately afterwards with a free-for-all. I think it's possible, perfectly possible, to identify routes and time scales by which people would come and if you've got a proper system of identification would, would leave the country having earned their living and made a contribution. The Germans did it for many years uh, after the Second World War, we could do it again now.
2: Okay. Rachel, the growth question. Where do you think the growth can come
4: from?
5: I think he could make it about education and that education is the way to... It's a long-term thing. but David's also, nodding. Yeah, and David's produced a very good report on this. The Times Education Commission had lots of ideas on practical things that would make a difference. There's a problem for Starmer, though, which is that... There's a sort of massive black hole in his argument, which is Brexit. One of the main reasons why growth is floundering and problematic in this country is because of Brexit. And he doesn't say that. And I just wanted to pick up on something Steve said, which is, I think, I can see why it's, it's comforting or reassuring to people in this room or in the Labour Party to be told that it's a progressive moment, but actually... If Starmer wants to get to number 10, he's got to win over people who voted Tory. And I think that was what Blair did and why he won all those elections. And I think if Starmer or people around him are too squeamish about that, that's not going to work for him.
0: I think they're obsessed with winning over Tories. I mean, look at their obsessive focus on the Red Wall and, and indeed other parts of England. They must be obsessed with this or they're, or they're going to lose. But that is very different uh, to seeing a former election-winning leader in alliance with figures from this long period of Conservative rule. But It's got to be his moment. It's not his moment and William Hague's moment, David Cameron's <laughs> moment,
4: George Osborne's moment. It's his moment. Well, look, and uh, people, and, people uh, out there don't give a damn whether somebody claims to be progressive or not. What they're looking for is, do they connect with them? I mean... As most people know, I, I'm a traditionalist with progressive values. I, and <laughs> I, I, I think that Keir's just got to reassure that he actually does get it. He understands. Don't always talk about his dad on tools or his mum, uh, you know, health service and all the rest of it. Just, just be yourself and get across that you get it, that you're, you're alongside and supporting people in what their aspirations are for a better life for themselves, and by by dint of that, a better country to live in. Somehow, we've got to get across to people that whilst we're being incredibly cautious with their money, we're incredibly ambitious in terms of what we can do for the nation. And if we don't get that balance right, then people will say, "Why, why bother voting? And we need a lot of people, including a lot more young people, who think it's actually worth going out and voting next year. If we don't get that right, then we won't get that one majority, that ten majority, which would be, by the way, a massive outcome for Keir Starmer and the Shadow cabinet.
2: Well, what a fascinating conversation. My huge thanks to David Blunkett, to Rachel Sylvester and to Steve Richards. I'm going to release you now so you can go enjoy a glass of wine and mingle with the throng of blairites out there. So... We are the day after Blair Stock. Welcome back, Sam. The first question, the burning question our listeners will want to know is, how did the Bar Mitzvah rehearsal go? Uh,
3: It went well. Everything was fine. Uh, They they did did a good job. My twins did a good job. So hopefully Saturday is the big day. So... uh, uh, everything is set up nicely, so fingers crossed and um I mean, you and I sort of watched the the speech in the chat. you had to dash off
2: you've had a chance to to listen to the conversation I had with with Rachel and Steve and David Blunkett.
3: What are your thoughts on on what you saw and the conversation we had? Uh, I think there was a lot of really interesting stuff to reflect on. I did. I, I really like the points that Steve was making about the sort of sense of of looking backwards all the time, and I think this is a a bigger problem in politics at the moment. I and mean, the Tories have it with Thatcher becoming their sort of lodestar and constantly referring to sort of winter of discontent and the miners' strike, even though these things were you know, forty forty five years ago. Now, the sort of Blair era is coming a bit like that for, for Labour, sort of this sort of mythological golden age and there's some sort of danger of getting trapped in the 1990s and as and so of that that comment around you know I've got to do uh you know Kinnock, Smith and Blair in one term but well, no you don't because we're not in the 90s anymore the situation is different the world is different so I, I do feel Starmer and the sort of wider political sort of media world have this sort of tendency to sort of constantly be pulled back to the past rather than looking forward to what our new challenges are. Despite the theme of the conference being to the future of Britain,
2: I suppose in our defence, because you having been a former Tory, you're now more to the left than everybody now, but having been a former Tory who worked for the Conservative Party and worked for Michael Gove, you guys are so used to winning elections. They're 10 a penny for you. They're not that big a deal. (laughs) But for us in the Labour movement, you know, 1997 is forever etched in our mind as this kind of, you know, incredible moment in, in history, sort of point of magic. And I suppose that will be the case realistically until someone wins again. So perhaps... What will happen. And Steve, I think you're right. Steve did touch on this. You know, if if, if Starmer can win in 2024, he, he gets to sort of write this new chapter in Labour history and he gets to be his own person. And I think reflecting overnight, the optic and the symbolism was so strong that Starmer had had made a choice. He'd picked a side and he was picking the side of Blair, this three time election winner. I just hope that he still gives himself the space to be his own person if he does win. And it's not yes. all he, he just won because of Tony Blair. He won because he, you know, well, this, is, this is is my
3: worry. I mean, you know, you know, my view is that Labour will, will win anyway because the Tories are in such a mess. And I know this is not sort of so widely shared within the Labour ranks, but, but there, there's a danger that they end up. Doing this sort of performance to try and be as much like what they, they sort of imagine that the Blair era was like, and they win, and they think it was because of that, uh, and then they sort of sort of take that into the way that they govern and they sort of over-prioritise the sort of, sort of sense of safety and uh, rather than what they want to say and what they want to do, sort of with the two-child limit being the sort of, again, the sort of symbolic thing that was in all the papers this morning that came from, from the speech. I, I just don't think they need to do that to win. And I think, yeah, you, know, you say I used to work with the Tories, which I did. The, the, the big difference to me, the extraordinary difference moving from sort of Tory world into Labour world and sort of, you know, through the course of this series, talking to so many Labour people, is the level of confidence is just so much lower because they don't have that history of winning elections, because they almost don't have the same sort of level of confidence in their own ideas. You know, you look at someone like Liz Truss, you know, to to have extraordinary levels of confidence in ideas that didn't work at all. And Labour won't even have the sort of conviction to say things they really deeply believe in because they're so terrified of the electorate. It's that sort of, that that difference in confidence is extraordinary to sort of watch. See, you're absolutely right, but that is because...
2: If you're a conservative, the the game in terms of the political architecture from and that includes the media, by the way, is absolutely rigged in in your favor. So Liz Truss can come out with this like total like bonkeroo sort of you know mini budget. Let's go for these tax cuts, and she's got a whole kind of army of, of commentators and people in the press who will be like, oh this sounds like a very radical idea. This sounds a great idea. Labour promulgate any idea with spending and they feel the full force of of basically every media, apart from like The Guardian, even Labour List gives them a hard time these days. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like basically the full force, apart from Polly Toynbee, like everybody is literally having a go at them right now. So that's why I think that, I think that's, in our defense, that's why we're so nervous. I remember a really prominent Westminster journalist who I will not name said to me after the 2015 general election, like after it was all over and, and we sort of caught up for a drink. And they said to me, one thing I, I probably would admit is that we just are pro we're hardwired in our newsrooms to just go in much harder on any labor economic policy than we ever do, I mean, it's not that we don't test the, the Tories, but we allow space for a narrative. It can be quite an interesting idea. But Labour, we will always like, you know, as soon as the policy comes out, the kind of eat it from high is like, right, absolutely tear this down. So I think that's why collectively Labour people, myself included, having lived through this, have absolutely got the scars on our back. Like last week, a kind of mad idea on inheritance, cutting inheritance tax was floated. And This was essentially another mad idea, an unfunded tax cut. And when I was on my radio show, you know, I had so many listeners messaging in saying, why is like, you know, lots of people having discussions about the merits of cutting inheritance tax. And lots of my listeners were messaging going, why is nobody messaging going, what the actual, you know, this is another massive unfunded. If this was the Labour Party promulgating anywhere near this, they'd get absolutely rinsed. Whereas people are like, oh, what an interesting idea from the Tories. Let's see how this plays out politically.
3: I mean, you're, you're completely right. You saw it with the with the money that was found to um, to do the pay deals last week. That was unfunded. It there's, it's no, no, no taxes were increased. No, no spending cuts. Uh, at least no spending cuts that were made public were announced, so yeah, you're absolutely right the Tories the tori- get away with stuff that, that labor don't, but there's a bit chicken and egg isn't it because because labor always back off and you have a situation at the moment where they're kind of reinforcing the narrative that the right wing press want to create, which is that previous labor governments and previous Labour oppositions have been too too happy to spend money, that, that finances are in a position where we can't even spend a billion pounds on on doing something that would significantly reduce child poverty. That's all sort of feeding into the narrative. So you're kind of making it worse all the time by not being prepared, by being sort of scared of challenging it. But of course I understand why they're scared of challenging it, but, but it's sort of, there's no way out of the trap unless you find some issues on which you're going to say, actually, wait a minute, we've got a really strong case on this one.
2: I suppose... Wrapping up because this is our final episode of of this series. You know, applying the exam question to to us. Do you think here is now passing the, the the power test?
3: Well, I think if I was going to sort of wrap up my view on the whole series, it's that Labour are are doing enough to win, doing more than enough to win the election, and 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 I think that they will. I am much more worried about how they're going to govern. And I think they are creating a lot of traps for themselves because they're so nervous about the election. They're creating a lot of traps for themselves for the year after they win. And I think in our our second series, which we're going to do in the autumn, We're going to come back more to this idea of what does actually governing look like? What does it mean to put a spending review together? What does it mean to put a King's speech together? What what bills do you want to have in there? If you think opposition's hard, governing is really hard. And, And I just worry that they're not thinking beyond whatever the election date is at the moment. What about you? So
2: I think in the course of this series, I feel like Labour has absolutely answered that question. They are ready to win power because the Tories and the SNP are kind of gifting it to them. It's not entirely in the bag, but you know that has changed. I sort of feel like they have done a, a good job and I think it is necessary to be quite safe at this point because I think if they were going around spraying about too many wildly exciting radical ideas, they would see their poll lead weaken. I think they would just be playing into the hands of their many, many opponents. I think the next series is really going to focus on what's going to be possible for them in in power. I just feel it's very easy to say, oh, well, you know, they've got to be more radical. And they've got to be this, that, the next thing. It was incredible just to remember that, you know, just over three years ago, the party had absolutely tanked at the 2019 general election campaign. I remember doing an event with Tony Blair, like, like the two days after the general election and Tony Blair just saying this party is like finished for this foreseeable, like absolutely finished. So in his own words, to have taken the party from the point of, extinction to the point of government is an incredible feat, but there's still a long way to go.
3: Well, thanks for listening to the first series of The Power Test. Do get in touch with us. Tell us what you'd like to hear in the second. Tweet at The Power Test or tweet us directly or email us at pod at thepowertest.co.uk.
2: We're taking a short summer recess, but The Power Test will be back in the autumn. And we're so grateful for all your support. We will be back in the autumn as we gear up for party conference season, as we determine what Labour should do to win and change Britain for the better.